0: TheYeshiva.net So today's class is dedicated in the loving memory of Rachel Basra Shmuel Leib Halevi Horowitz. Throughout her short time in this world, she was able to inspire her husband, her children, and countless others to feel Hashem's love in their lives, and to serve Hashem with deep and profound joy and simcha. Tehei Nishmasa Tzura B'Tzurer HaChayim And may her joy remain an eternal source of light and inspiration to the entire family and to all of you, to all of us. Thank you very much. So, there was once an insecure comedian who got up to do a uh, stand up presentation. And he basically began this way He said, Did you ever hear the joke about the insecure comedian? And his response was, "It's okay. You probably wouldn't have would have not liked it anyway." In Parsha Shlach, we deal with what is perhaps the single greatest collective failure of leadership in the whole Torah. Let's remember the context: the Jewish people have finally been liberated from Egypt. They have managed to cross the sea, they have defeated their Egyptian foes, they're on their way to the homeland, not without some terrible stumbling blocks and failures in the interim. There was the debacle of the Golden Calf, the creation of the Golden Calf, even before that they were amb- ambushed and attacked by a molech After that, there was a national mourning for Aaron's two sons who died on the great day of the inauguration of the sanctuary. Still, after all of these setbacks, the Jewish people are on the cusp of entering, at last, the promised land. But there is one more thing to do. They have heard about this legendary country from their grandparents who have heard about it, from the great grandparents who have heard about it, from their grandparents. Moshe painted a vivid picture for them of this country as a land flowing with milk and honey, a place that they can call home after centuries of slavery, subjugation, and wandering, a place that will ultimately provide that feeling of home, sweet home. All that's left to do is to enter it, to conquer it, to settle it. But first, they need to gather some intelligence. What is the topography of the land? What are the people like? What are its weaknesses? What are its vulnerabilities? What is the best way to enter? Enter the spies, the scouts, the miraglim, 12 of the Jewish nation's most prestigious and prominent leaders, men of distinction, men of intelligence, men of integrity. The Torah has brief but potent words to use when it describes them. Kulam Anoshim, Bnei Yisrael The twelve men that Moshe shows were all men. And what it means they were all men is they were all, you know, you say the man... The, the man of the hour, the man of the home—they were men. They were, they were gavras. They were people of prominence, of, of of depth, of integrity, of character, of prestige. Rashi says, "Loshen chashivus." It denotes significance, prominence, renown. And if you had a doubt about that, the Torah makes sure to say, Roshe bnei Yisrael Each one of them was considered a head. Obviously, using that as a metaphor, each one of them was considered the head, as the leader of the organism, the brain is the father, the mother, the mentor, the guide. Each of them was a brain in the sense of each of them was a guide, a mentor, a leader. They go. They come back. And it's a disaster. They start with the positive. As they return, they start off on a positive note and they tell Moshe and Aaron and the Jewish people, we came to the land to which you sent us, Indeed, it flows with milk and honey. zavas chalavu dvash And here we have displayed, we have brought back its beautiful, elegant, delicious fruits. Then comes the dreaded however. Right? You know the however. What some people call but. You make the call and you hear all the beautiful things and then there is a but. You don't hang up before the but or the however. Well, they also insert a however, and the however is quite dreaded. They say, however, the people who dwell in the land, the land is beautiful, the land has amazing fruits, but the people who dwell in the land are mighty. The cities are fortified and very large and powerful. True Kalev, one of the spies, tries to divert his fellow spies from the negative conclusions, but it's too late. The people have lost heart. And the spies deliver a despairing verdict. And the despairing verdict is we are not able to go up. We cannot go up against the people because they are simply stronger, more powerful than we are. This is a land that devours its inhabitants, meaning there's no way we will survive there. If we try to dwell there, we will be obliterated. They won't be. And then they give the dramatic conclusion. And just to understand the structure, the story of the spies is recorded in two chapters of Chumash, Bamidbar Yud Gimel and Perik Yudalad. Numbers chapter 13 and chapter 14. The conclusion, chapter 13 describes the mission and the spies coming back and their report and that concludes chapter 13. Chapter 14 begins, what happens next? What happens to the people after their report? So how does chapter 13 begin? end? It's 33 psukim, the last pasuk, and you have it in your source sheets. This is their conclusion. Vishamra ra'inu es hanafilim b'nei anok min Hanefilim. Over there, in the land of Canaan, we saw Nephilim, our giants. Extraordinarily great, large, mighty people. The sons of someone called Anok. Minha nephilim they are descendants from giants. They're not only giants themselves, it's in their genes. Vanehi kachagavim. In our eyes, we seemed like grasshoppers. ha'inu And so we were in their eyes. So they're saying two things. We appear to ourselves as grasshoppers. When we experienced ourselves in the presence of these giants, we felt like grasshoppers. And it's also how they experienced us. That's how we seem to them. We appear to them. This concludes chapter 13. What happens in chapter 14 is chaos ensues. The people lose hope. They wail, sob, and weep throughout the night. The promise of entering the Holy Land has been taken from them. It's been stolen from them. National hysteria breaks out. They feel depleted. They feel deprived. They feel gypped. They feel that they have no future. And indeed... They don't enter the land. As the story continues throughout chapter 14, only their children, the next generation will enter the promised land together with the leader, Yehoshua Benun, Joshua was one of the spies. For the generation led by the spies, they indeed remain in the desert. This is just the context of the story. Now, I don't know if there's anyone in Jewish history who hasn't, had a take on this story of the spies. It's one of the most analyzed stories of failure, not only in Chumash and the whole Tanakh, and it's not hard to understand why, because the unfathomable dimensions of it are very apparent. How could such distinguished leaders, chosen by none other than Moshe Rabbeinu himself, the loyal shepherd of the Jewish people, who knew his people, and certainly knew the leaders who he has chosen to take care of the people. How can they fail so spectacularly? I don't know if those two words go together, but that's exactly the point. How do you fail so spectacularly? But today I want to focus on one fascinating interpretation in Madrash. The Medrash zooms in from the whole story. The Medrash zooms in on one small detail of their tragic monologue. It's easy not to uh, give it much attention, just to gloss over it. But the Medrash somehow sees in these words a key, what you call today key words, sees in it a a key aspect of the story. And probably it's because these words, you can call them maybe the nail in the coffin. There was a coffin, but then there's the nail in the coffin, the final words that close their speech and seal their fate. So it's not a coincidence that the Torah puts these words at the conclusion of Periket Gimel, chapter 13, after which we learn of how the nation responded, how the nation broke out in sobbing, how the nation lamented and cried. So therefore, the Medrash sees these words not just as important, but vital, vital to the story. How do the Meraglim conclude their report? Obviously, they feel that we can't go in. We'll all be killed the men, the women, the children, everybody will be killed. There's just no hope. This is a dreaded plan. This is a strategy that makes no sense. It's futile. It's not going to happen. It's simply we should stay in the desert or find somewhere else to live. But what are their last words? Their last words, their final words, and anybody who knows anything about communication and presentation, whether in writing or verbal, you know that the way you end is extremely important. It's like the landing of a plane. You know, taking off is important, and the flight is important, but landing is a special skill. You probably have been on different airplanes, and you know there's pilots who land, and there's pilots who there's pilots who land. You have to know how to take off. You have to know how to fly, and you have to know how to end. You have to know how to land. I was I was once at an event, and an MC introduced somebody. It was in humor, and he says, "This speaker doesn't need an introduction. He needs an ending." (laughs) <laughs> so sometimes you need an end <laughs> sometimes you need an ending but you also have to know how to end the Gemara says in Brachas when it comes to Brachas it all follows the punchline the chitum what were the final seal chitum is like the Chosim, the seal, the end, the chasima the signature the signature words what were the signature words with which they signed off and the answer is v'anihi beinenu v'chein we seemed like grasshoppers to ourselves and so we appeared in their eyes. Comes the Medrash and makes a comment that is both fascinating and peculiar. Take a look. Medrash Tanchuma, Parshash Shlach, Perik Yud Gimel. This is Medrash Tanchuma. It's also in Medrash Rabbah, so it's in more than one space in Medrash. I quoted Medrash Tanchuma because there's a few extra words that clarify it even more. Let's read. Amru. The spies said, In our eyes, we were like grasshoppers. Hashem responds and he says, I tolerated that remark. I was mevater. I could forgo that remark, even though I don't like it. But I can tolerate the remark. In our own eyes, we were like grasshoppers. But when they said, and so we were in their eyes, ah, now that was hurtful. Now I was aggrieved. It's a fascinating medrash. There's two things, two statements they're saying. First, they talk about themselves. We felt like grasshoppers. In the presence of such... uh, Powerful cities, powerful inhabitants, mighty people, fortified fortified cities and towns and villages, giants. I felt like a grasshopper. I felt tiny, I felt mediocre, I felt small. Vitarti. I didn't like it, but I was Mavata. I could forgo it. I can overlook it. But what really hurt, what really pained me is when I heard them say, And that's how we appeared To them, that's how we were in their eyes. And he continues, Did you actually know how they looked at you? Did you know how they perceive you? You're concluding here that they looked at us, and we felt like grasshoppers, they looked at us and they certainly said, hey, look at those grasshoppers. Says the Medrash, God said, Hashem said, did you know what I made you in their eyes? Do you actually, did you ever get feedback? Did you ever hear from them how they saw you? Maybe I made you seem like angels in their eyes? Who told you that they didn't see you as malachim? That you came to this dramatic and devastating conclusion that they saw you as grasshoppers? That's the end of the medrash. So the medrash, as always, we often said that the medrash is like harmony to a song. The possek tells the story and the medrash fills in the gaps that give us the full resonance of the story. So the medrash is saying, the spy spoke, their words had power and potency. Hashem, so to speak, responds to them. The medrash describes, you know, w- what do these words mean from Hashem's perspective? And here he says the first half of the statement, "new." I didn't like it, but knew, as we say, knew, knew. The second half of the statement was very difficult to bear. Who, how do you know they didn't look at you as angels? Now, let's try to understand what the Medrash is saying here. When the sages, when the Chachamim, Chazal read this posik, they felt this disparity between the first half of their statement and the second half of their statement. Obviously, Hashem doesn't say anything in Chumash. Hashem doesn't speak to the spies. Later, in chapter 14, Hashem will speak to Moshe Rabbeinu and tell Moshe that the Jews don't want to go into Eretz Yisrael. They won't go into Eretz Yisrael. They will remain in the desert for 40 years and the next generation will enter into the land. Okay. The Rambam writes, the Rambam has a savior called Meir Nebuchad, the guide to the perplexed, and the Rambam explains that actually the 40 years of the desert was not your typical punishment or penalty but it was actually a natural consequence. Because he says, if we were to put it in contemporary words, whether you believe you can or you believe you can't, you're probably right. So if the Jewish people really felt they can't, they really could not. And indeed, it would have been a catastrophe. And he says they needed to uh, build their own esteem. And he even explains, because they were slaves for so many years, they cultivated a slave mentality. They didn't feel the dignity that they can really deal with the challenge. And he says they're children who grew up in a desert. And the Rambam says when you live outdoors, you know you have these outdoor camps. It's very good for teenagers when you live outdoors and you have to deal with the weather and the climate and all of the situations when you don't have that natural protection indoors. You uh, you know you learn about yourself and you learn about your strengths. You learn about your weaknesses. And you become a much more powerful person. So that's how the Rambam explains the 40 years of the young generation growing up and being raised in the desert allowed them to finally see themselves as a nation and enter into the land and settle it. So that's what Hashem will tell Moshe in the next chapter. But obviously our sages heard in these words something and they saw disparity between the two statements to explain to us that this was Hashem's feedback. Now you may ask, why is the first part forgivable, even if it was a mistake, and the second part unforgivable? When I say that I feel like a grasshopper, Hashem says, you're wrong, but I can tolerate it. But when I say that the inhabitants of the land see me as a grasshopper, Hashem says, this, this causes me so much heartache. What's the difference? The difference is so important to life, and so vital to life, and it's probably one of the reasons that the Chacham of the Medrash point out this distinction, even though you would think, my dahavahava, what happened, happened, whatever Hashem's response was, in order to teach us about these two perspectives. It's obviously not good to consider yourself a grasshopper, a Chagav, not a good thing. But Hashem says, Vitarti. I was Mavater. Why? Because it can have its advantages. It can also have terrible disadvantages, but it can have its advantages. People sometimes are more successful when they doubt themselves, when they have a good dosage of humility. There's a fascinating teaching of the Gemara in Mesechus Yumetz, your third source. Yumachav Bez Amit Bez. Kalmach, Raktat Yuma, 22b. Amar Rav Yehuda, Amar Shmuel. Rav Yehuda said in the name of his master, of his teacher Shmuel, Malchus Why did the kingship of the house of Shoal not continue on to succeeding generations? Shoal himself was the king, and after Shoal was killed, or died, killed himself during the war with the Philistines. The Malchus did not continue. Why? <laughs> not the answer you would expect. You would say, oh, he sinned. No. You know why? Because he had no flaws. <laughs> he had no blemish. His ancestry was unblemished. He came from impeccable lineage. The Omer Rabbi Yochanan Meshum Rabbi Shimon Ben Yehoi Tzadok Rabbi Yochanan said in the name of Rabbi Shimon, the son of Yehoi Tzadok. Ein ma'amidin parnas alat tzibur elim im kein kupah shel shratzim tlui She'im tazuach dayta yalov oymrimloi chazor la'achayrecha. Quite intense words. You appoint a leader over the community, a parnas on the tzibur only, you'll forgive me, I'm translating, if he has a box full of creeping insects or creeping rodents hanging behind him. What we call in English today, he has skeletons in the closet. Why? Why? <laughs> that would seem strange. So Rabbi explains, Shem tazuach dayti so that if he becomes arrogant, if he becomes haughty, we say to him, just look behind your back. Look what's hanging down your back. A In other words, it helps for humility, for perspective. Rashi says, lo'yayah Shum da'ifi." had no blemish, no flaw, mishpacha. Nothing in his family and ancestry was anything but impeccable. So the kings who would come from his descendants would become arrogant. They would become haughty. They would feel superior to all of the Jewish people. And that's very dangerous for a king. Because power corrupts, absolute power corrupts absolutely a king in the ancient world had such profound power, without a profound uh, counterbalance, dosage of humility, of perspective, of integrity, this king could be dangerous. Aval David, ooh, meirus ha-moyaviyah osa. David, the ancestry was not impeccable. When somebody didn't like what David HaMelech said, he would say, are you Jewish? Who is the Baba? Ah, Rus. I saw the Moavites can't come into the Jewish people. In fact, the, Gemari, the Mishnah, the Gemara says in Yavamis 76, that Doeg, Shoal's great advisor, told Shoal, you want to know if David is worthy of kingship? Why don't you find out first if he's worthy of even marrying a Jewish woman because he comes from the Moavites, from Rus. What did this do? He said this was very good. He says that's why Shoal's kingship can't continue. David Amalek's kingship could continue. That's what the Gemara tells us in Dav Chavbeis. These are powerful words. It means that the greatest danger to leadership is haughtiness. The key factor why Shoal's kingship could not continue is because there can be a sense of arrogance, of haughtiness. When the leader loses his or her simplicity, their vulnerability, their humanness, When you start taking yourself too seriously, when you can't laugh at yourself any longer, you lose that sense of humor about yourself, you could become a... You know, you start believing what everybody... (laughs) You start believing too much about yourself, it could become dangerous. What does this really mean? What it means is that humility isn't about denying your strengths, but humility is about being honest about your weaknesses. It's very different. People sometimes mistake humility as denying your strength. That's not humility. If somebody is tall and they say, oh, I'm humble, I'm really short. If somebody is very wise, they say, no, I'm a fool. That's not humility. That's, uh, I don't know, stupidity. If it's daytime and I say, no, it's nighttime, it's not humility. (laughs) Humility doesn't mean denying somebody's strength. When it says Moshe was the humblest person on earth, it doesn't mean that Moshe did not know that he was chosen by the Rabbi Neshelaylam to be the greatest prophet who ever lived. He didn't know it. He didn't know that he was chosen. Nobody else was chosen to lead them out of Egypt. Hashem could have chosen many others. He chose him. Humility always means how I see my greatness, how I see my talents, how I see my resources. They don't get to my head. I understand they're a gift. I understood if somebody else would have had those skills or strength or resources or gifts. He may have or she may have succeeded even more than him. One of the things we learn on the powerful and moving journey called life, it's that, you know, the sign of a truly successful individual, or at least one of the signs of a truly successful individual is their humility, their ability to be vulnerable. One of the great uh, therapists of the last generation, a student of Freud, his name was Carl Jung. And Carl Jung once said, I will only change others to the to the degree that I am ready to be changed. It is such a profound truth about life. I will only change others to the degree that I am ready to be changed. It's so true with education. It's true with parenting. It's true with all forms of leadership. I want to change you. I want to change him. I want to change her. I want to change my sons, my daughters, my daughters-in-law, my sons-in-law, my grandchildren. I want to change. I want to change, of course, my this one wants to change their spouse, this one wants to change their mother-in-law. He says, all, bea- all beautiful visions, but I can only change others to the degree that I am ready to be changed. And feeling that I'm incomplete, feeling that I have so much room to grow, can motivate a person. It, it, it leads a person to, to scale great heights of success. Now, you have to be very careful with this. Because sometimes this can be misconstrued as a verdict of self-loathing and self-shame and self-hate and endless and infinite guilt that depletes people from their energy and doesn't allow them to go anywhere and do anything. That's why Hashem is not happy about the words of the spies. And as Jews especially, we have to be careful because we have a nature to be self-critical and we scrutinize ourselves sometimes too much. Self-scrutiny is wonderful, but self-scrutiny that's excessive, you know, to make a chesh ben ha in the month of Elul is a wonderful thing. To make a chesh ben nefesh every single moment of your life can become extremely paralyzing. person has to take, when you have a business, once in a while you have to stop, take a breath, retreat, and examine the whole picture. But if you do it every single moment of the day, the business won't be able to generate any revenue. So sometimes people become too tough on themselves. And Jewish guilt and Jewish self-loathing are an, an age-old tradition. And therefore, to say that I feel like a grasshopper is incorrect. It's, what do I mean it's incorrect? Is it can have very negative results. It's excessive. But if you're making that self-assessment with a healthy mindset... Towards motivation and honesty and growth, Hashem says, "No. Maybe it can be redeemed. When you could forgive something, it means maybe, maybe we could redeem it." I had a great great grandfather. He was a chassid of the Tzemach Tzedek. His name was Reb Gershem Ber Paharer. So when he would go to sleep at night, almost every single night, he would say the same thing in Yiddish. He would say, "Morgen Dafman Ufstein, aufstehen, gar Tomorrow I should wake up as a completely different person. That's a type of humility that motivates growth. So there is a healthy mindset there. It can lead to a positive place. They say that there was once a person, a Jew, who came to the Baal Shem Tov. He was a spiritually accomplished man. He had a big mind. He was a Talmud Chachem. He was a scholar. And he also held himself in grand esteem. Is that a nice way of saying it? von Zich. He uh, he didn't think that he was a grasshopper, let's put it that way. He came to the Balshamtev and he asked him if he could give him a path through which he'll be able to have Gileo. He'll be able to perceive and see Elijah the prophet. There were unique souls throughout Jewish history. Who had that extraordinary privilege of having the revelation of Eliyahu Hanavi in their lives? So the Balshemtiv gave him instructions for ten years. Over the next ten years, this is how you should live. This is how you should behave, in order to be able to achieve this. And the man was a disciplined person. He dedicated himself to this work for a decade. He worked on himself. He refined his character, he liberated himself from negative qualities, dispositions, emotions, he cleansed himself from all corruption, and he prepared himself for the revelation, for the grand revelation of Eliyahu Anovi Elijah the prophet. After in 10 years of intense spiritual labor, nothing happened. Eliyahu Anovi Yetzich Elijah did not appear at his front door. The man was devastated. You know, 10 years, 10 years of Avoida, 10 years of work. He returns to the Baal Shem Tev, broken, shattered, in pieces. Sobbing, he tells the Baal Shem Tev, Rebbe, 10 years down the drain. Abge ten 10 years of my life, squandered, I've worked in vain. Hahevel havolim, all was futile. All was vanity. I spent my days in prayer and in study and in meditation and in fasting and introspection. I accomplished nothing. It was all a hevel v'larik, garnished with garnished, as your grandmother would say, bobkus. ephes, zero, no. And the barshamtiv looked at him and says, "I disagree. You accomplished a lot." He said, "What did I accomplish? What did I accomplish?" He says, You have accomplished over the last 10 years the most difficult task of all. You have become a humble human being. <laughs> it gave him perspective. Sometimes that can be deeper than Gili Eliyahu. Because Gili Eliyahu is, I'm giving my own interpretation. Now, Gili Eliyahu is, Mashadah didn't say this. Gili Eliyahu is, Eliyahu reveals himself. It's amazing. Humility allows you to reveal yourself to yourself. And the revelation of your own self of yakhidishabanafish of the core of your nishama could even be sometimes deeper. So when the miraglum come and say vanihibay naynukakhagov, I feel small. I feel like a grasshopper in the presence of such power, of such greatness. It's not good. But Hashem says it can be salvageable. I can tolerate it. I can deal with it. You know what? If it motivates me not to stop working, not to stop climbing, not to stop working on myself, shine. Sometimes, if the means bring to positive ends, okay, we can salvage this statement, this sentiment, this feeling. But then comes the second half of the statement. And so we were in their eyes. When my self-perception causes me to engage in mind reading, now I'm busy reading your mind. I know exactly how you see me. Now I'm projecting my assumptions onto others. Now I have entered disastrous territory. Why? Because while my own image of myself can sometimes be a bit excessive in humility, some people are excessive in arrogance and some people are excessive in humility, again, it can have a meaningful outcome. You have to be careful. (laughs) That's why God doesn't just say, oh, I love when you feel like a grasshopper. No, you have to be careful. Because again, fake humility, dramatic humility, excessive humility can be extremely destructive for a person's life. But if the result is, I don't go into a depression. The result is, I continue to climb, as the Russians say, Pajalista, Shei yekach, But When I begin imagining that everyone around me thinks that I'm a grasshopper, I'm an imposter, I'm a horrible person, I'm despicable, I'm unworthy, I'm a charlatan, I'm a liar, I'm a thug, I'm a schmata I'm worthless, I'm valueless, I'm inconsequential. And I know it for sure. I see it. I see. I feel it. I hear the, co- I, I even, I almost hear the conversations I hear right before I came in, I, I feel it all over the place. Now I'm a mind reader. I'm a soul reader. Now I have Ruach Kaidish, I have nevuah. Now I become completely paralyzed by inaction when I'm convinced that everybody sees me as a nobody. It's a recipe for disaster on every level, physical, visceral, emotional, psychological, spiritual, in my individual life. And if I'm a leader... If I'm a father, if I'm a mother, if I'm a teacher, if I'm a leader, and everyone is a leader in their, own, in their own corner, everyone is a leader. There's nobody in the world who's not a leader. Everyone is a leader. It could be to my own family. It could be to my own corner, my own orbit. It's a disaster not just in my life, but also in the life of the people around me. Because if you have an exaggerated, modest appraisal of yourself, okay, so we can work on it. It's one thing. If I keep my ego in check a little too much, so I'm always striving for more, I want to remain grounded, I want to remain vulnerable, I want to remain humane. Again, there can be very powerful advantages to that. I want to remain a team player. I don't want to, I don't want to get out of whack. Fine. You know, it's probably better than the other extreme. When I have a narcissistic, inflated haughty ego, and I, I can't deal with criticism. I can't deal with anybody having a different opinion. I can't deal with seeing another perspective. It's a beautiful expression in Jewish philosophy. Cherish critique because it will, it will uh, embolden you to reach great heights. Now we have to understand what critique means. Critique doesn't mean Just plain criticism. We shouldn't give people criticism. We're talking about feedback that allows a person to hear truth and grows. But when the worm of doubt has so infected my psyche, that basically I see it now reflected in everybody. I see it in everybody's eyes, in everybody's faces. I feel it in everybody's heart, in everybody's attitudes, in everybody's dispositions. I'm constantly looking over my shoulder, consciously or unconsciously, deliberately or non-deliberately, with reflection or instinctively. Now what happens? I'm terrified to state an opinion. I'm terrified to share my truth. I'm terrified to make any real positive changes in the world. This is a fatal flaw. What I find so meaningful about this medrash is something that we have basically discovered now. One of the most exciting things about Torah is, the Medrash says that when Hashem created the world, he used a blueprint. Just like when a contractor builds a home. I don't know if you ever had to deal with that. But a a good contractor uses the blueprint of the architect. And a good contractor won't deviate. He won't say, you know, when you ask him, why is the bathroom here? Oh, it made sense. Sure oh, I couldn't pull the wires there, I pulled the wires here, right? You know those contractors? But the real contractor uses the blueprint, hopefully the architect knew what he was doing, or she was doing, and they made plans, perfect plans, impeccable plans, and the contractor now uses the blueprint to execute and implement. So the Medrash Rab in the beginning of Veracious and the Zoya ask a question, what were the blueprints that the Reboi Nishalolim used to build the world? Now, it's an interesting question. If he's God, he probably doesn't need blueprints. But apparently, everything that's built needs blueprints. Why? Because if there's a problem, you have to go back to the blueprints. You always have to go back to the blueprints. Because the blueprints have everything in them. The blueprints give perspective. The blueprints are the backdrop from which everything was formed and created. So the Medrash answers the Torah. The Zoya says, He like, like looked into the Torah and he created the universe. In the Medrash, the Torah is called or opinkasayis, literally blueprints that the architect draws and the contractor employs to build the world. In this case, the architect and the contractor were the same. That's why it only took six days rather than, in your house, 16 years. (laughs) You know the story about the Jew, right? He ordered this most beautiful silk fabric and he came to a Jewish tailor and he said, make me this most elegant suit in the world. It should blow everybody away. He said, No problem, give me four weeks. Comes back four weeks. It's not ready. It's a complicated job. I need two months. Two, it's not ready. Seven months. After seven months, the suit is ready. The Jew is not happy. He comes, dresses, gets dressed, tries it on. It's beautiful. Krem de la Krem. But he says, I don't understand you. Even God's world, how long did it take him to create the world? Six days and a suit, seven months? And the tailor looks at him and says, how do you compare? <laughs> Look at my suit, perfect. Look at the world, Sugar. chaos. Nobody knows if they're coming or going. Israel can't figure out how to have a government for more than a few weeks. Look at the crazy world. How do you compare? Me, it took seven months. But what's this idea that Chazal trying to say something. He looked in the Torah and he created the world. What's the, And if he didn't look, <laughs> same one who made the Torah made the world. There's a very profound message here. The profound message here is that there's nothing in the world that doesn't have its origin in Torah. And if you really want to understand the soul of it, if you really want to go back to the, to the drawing boards, pun intended, if you really want to trace every reality back to its source... In the Torah, you could see the progenitor, the seed, the prototype, the backdrop for the universe. And you could see it from a holistic perspective, just like in a blueprint, you see it from a holistic perspective. I can't see the whole universe in one shot. I don't have the bird's eye view. So it allows you both to see the true meaning of every individual item in the home, but also to be able to get the picture, a bird's eye view of the full picture. It also means the other way that there's nothing in Torah that doesn't have application and is not manifested somewhere in life, somewhere in the world. And that's one of the very profound truths when a person learns Torah, especially when you delve in to the neshama, to the depth, to the plimmius, to the core of Torah. One of the things, and here is a classic, I'm saying this because here's a classic example for this. Today there's a word that goes around a lot, but it's often misused, it's called trauma. We've all heard the word. I don't know if a few years ago anybody even knew what it means. Just like PTSD was coined in our own generation as a result of the soldiers coming back from Vietnam, trauma is a recently common term, certainly in the vocabulary of the masses. But sometimes it's misused actually in very inappropriate ways. Somebody says, I'm traumatized because the taxi did not come. I'm traumatized because I'm late to the bar mitzvah, I'm late to the wedding. I'm traumatized. I missed my flight. I said, you're not traumatized. You're annoyed. You're annoyed. I get it. I've missed many flights. (laughs) It's annoying. It's frustrating. I didn't only miss flights. Flights get delayed. Flights get cancelled. I've spent many a day in LaGuardia Airport because my soul has many sparks there to elevate and sublimate for whatever reason. (laughs) I get it. It's important, I'm saying this because it's important to know what real trauma is. Real trauma is something else. Real trauma doesn't mean I'm living in Brooklyn and my car was towed. It's annoying. <laughs> they make you schlep a whole day and you feel like a real shmata. But with all due respect to people who have endured that, and I'm one of them, I've learned my lesson. <laughs> I live in Muncie, <laughs> it's one of the lessons I learned. <laughs> Uh, I remember the day I moved there. I grew up in Brooklyn. You know, there's no parking anywhere. So two days after I moved there, my wife called me and she said, you go to a supermarket and there's parking. It was like, wow. a <laughs> Achidosh. With all due respect to all of those, all of us Brooklynites who have gotten ticket after ticket after ticket. And I once met a fellow, of my, a friend of mine, and I saw him park at an event in Brooklyn. It was a Hasana, And he parked at the fire hydrant. I said, what are you doing? You're going to get a ticket. He says, yeah, it's part of the budget. For me, for me, paying $175 is worth the menuchas and nefesh that I don't have to circle 40 minutes. People, yeah, you pay your lawyer much more money for 45 minutes, right? You pay him $600. My, you pay your therapist sometimes more. He says, my serenity is worth the money for the ticket. I need a place to park. That's it. I hear you. You know, you start thinking when you live in Brooklyn, you start thinking certain ways. Or you join Hatzalah, that's another option. <laughs> However, all of these things can be annoying and frustrating. The cleaning lady didn't show up. Yes, very annoying, aggravating, sometimes painfully aggravating because you're making a shower tonight. And tomorrow night, you have another event that you're making. Fine. But it shouldn't be confused with what trauma is. Maybe we need a different word. Because what trauma really is, trauma is murder. Trauma is spiritual murder. The Pasik says in Parshiski Saitse that when somebody abducts a woman and violates her, the Torah says, ish nefesh kein hadavaraza. When you take a person and you murder them, the Torah says, the Torah makes this comparison, not me. The only place the Torah compares something to murder was when somebody took a woman, the woman was married and he abducted her and he violated her. The Torah compares it to murder. He didn't murder the woman. The Torah somehow compares it to murder. This means murder happens on different levels. There's Khalilah physical murder. There's another type of murder. Murder is when I steal somebody's eye. When I steal your soul. I steal your identity. We know today that children especially children who have been through certain experiences of physical, sexual abuse. I'm talking about real, real experiences of abuse. When I say real, we don't know exactly what real means because there can be so many different responses in a person's psyche based on how their family... For example, if somebody has been really hurt by their father in in terrible, terrible ways, but they had a mother that they can speak to, And they received a lot of love and a lot of comfort. So as Bessel van der Kolk says, real trauma is about the isolation of it. It didn't just happen. I'm alone. And it reaffirms my aloneness in the world. It reaffirms that I have nobody in the world. And if I have nobody in the world, I don't want to blame my father. So I blame myself. I must be such a despicable person. I must be such a despicable person. And that's why I feel so horrible about myself. And that's why I'm so self-conscious. And that's why I can't trust myself. And that's why I'm so queasy. And that's why I'm so weird. Nobody helped a child. You couldn't. It was pre-verbal. Nobody helped a child identify where the real source of their inadequacies is coming. It's not because you are bad. It's because somebody murdered you. Somebody literally did something and it stole your identity from you. And you don't exist anymore. And it's one of the most tragic experiences because people who don't know about this really don't know about this. They sometimes mock from this language. You know, I get some feedback on my classes. Oh, you with your traumas. You have trauma, so you're busy talking about trauma. So if somebody, doesn't know about this, I always say, Tavay and Bracha, you know, Baruch Hashem, you should never know about this. But somebody who knows about this knows, you know, that, uh, There was a young man who once told me, he was molested for many years as a youngster, and he told me that you have to understand, this is years ago, he told me that if somebody would have taken a gun and murdered me, I would have been murdered once. Today I'm murdered every single day. For me to get out of bed in the morning takes so much courage. I have to literally fight every neuron in my brain to tell myself there's a reason I can get out of bed. Now other people don't understand what happened. What happened? What happened? Because different people react in different ways. Some people have had support. Some people didn't have to be lonely. Some people have different dispositions. But sometimes what happens is a person's identity is stolen from them. And you're a four-year-old kid. You're a six-year-old child. You didn't even develop. Never mind if you're a three-year-old. And even if you're an 11-year-old. There's also situations that the brain shuts down the memory. The brain its too painful to look at. So my brain says it never happened because the brain is trying to protect me our brains are amazing so the entire memory is only on a subconscious level consciously I don't know about it so now I'm feeling forgive me, I'm feeling creepy I'm feeling weird, I'm feeling strange I don't know the truth that somebody did something to me that stole my eye so what do I say? Ich bin der I'm a really, really weird, weird person and I start believing it and then if I believe it of course everybody believes it because everybody sees the truth so now what happens? I'm not just a grasshopper. Everybody knows that I'm a grasshopper. I can't ask anybody for a favor. <laughs> Me? Me? <laughs> Dirty, creepy, filthy, weird, abnormal, misogynist self? I should ask you for a favor? I'm not going to even have an opinion. I have to become an eternal people's pleaser. You know what a people's pleaser is? I always, you know what a people's pleaser is? I always have to make sure that I don't tow. I don't step out of the line. I always toe the line because I could never stand out. Because if I stand out, what might happen? Somebody might say, hey, who's that? They may notice me. And if they notice the real me, oh my God. That's the tragedy of the century. Because that I is the most disgusting thing that I've ever lived. All I can afford is to show up to life with an external me. With a bubble. With a facade. You ever went to a wax museum? You ever saw Winston Churchill, Roosevelt in the wax museums? I had a teacher, he was somewhat of an absent minded professor. And in those days, he would smoke a lot. And he once went into the, to the wax museum in London. What is it called? Madame. Uh, yeah. Incredible place. Winston Churchill is holding a cigar. Right? He was mama, she was in his own world. So he goes over to Churchill and he asks him for a match <laughs> to light the cigarette, right? So the wax museums, they're amazing. And sometimes, what if a person becomes that wax? that person of wax. I have this whole image like a stuffed doll. I'm stuffed up, I look real, I know what to do because I learned from society what to do, but internally I'm not present. I disassociated from myself. Can you understand the depth of the tragedy that this person is dealing with? And then they're expected to have relationships, to show up in relationships, and the person may not even know what they're dealing with. And that's what the Medrash is teaching us here. The Chayno Yinu Beinayim is, I look around, I walk around the world, and I'm constantly imagining, I feel it, I feel it in my bones, what you think about me. And it's terrible. It's not just I have this extra humility, I'm introspective, I'm like, okay, so you you have an extra dosage of Jewish guilt, we have to deal with it. (laughs) We need emancipation. Mela. And if, you're, and if you're a talented person, it's nishkeferlich to have a little extra humility. It doesn't, hurt, it doesn't always kill. Sometimes it's a big blessing. David HaMelech's humility is what saved him and Malchus base, David. We say David Melech is Shol Chai V'kayim. I spoke Shavuos. When Nasin Anavi confronted David about what he did with Basheva, David said two words, Chatosi Lashem, I have sinned. When Shmuel was confronted by Shmuel, when Shol was confronted by Shmuel Novi, Shol said, I really did the right thing. He didn't have that vulnerability that David Amalek had in life. So that's one aspect. But Hashem says, This hurts. Because what this means is, I'm now projecting on the entire world. Everyone sees me as an imposter. Everyone sees me as a loser. Everybody knows that I'm a criminal. Everybody knows that I'm unworthy. Everybody sees me as. I never heard it from anybody, but I'm gonna even hear. They won't even tell me the truth, even if they give me a compliment. That's just superficial. I'm living in a completely alternate reality. I could tell them. I don't. I could tell them. I don't see you as a grasshopper. Of course, you don't see me as a grasshopper. I'm such a grasshopper in your eyes that you have Rachmanes on me. So what are you going to say? I'm a grasshopper. So you understand the compliments are also uh, distorted. The feedback is distorted. Why? Because the tools through which I perceive reality are not tools that are coming from my authentic, beautiful self. They are tools of trauma. And the tools that you use in order to define reality will define reality. If I'm listening to you from a place of trauma, your compliments will also become a source of trauma. It's a very, very profound truth that the Medrash is saying here, what this condition of is, And how does that affect me? It affects me in the sense, I could never take a risk. I could never show up fully. I could never be different. I could never be really truthful. It shows up in a billion ways that undermines everything. Most importantly, it shows up in my internal self. There's no core. There's absolutely no core. I don't show up to life with a core, and that I would say is what murder is. What is murder? Murder is there's no person. I killed a person. The neshama is, lives, but down here the neshama is not in the guf anymore. What's spiritual murder? What's emotional murder? There's no person anymore. They could still function. They can speak. They can even be talented. They could even be making a lot of money, but it's all tarnished. It's all contaminated. By that lack of an inner core, sometimes it's the other way around. They become more talented, more ambitious, more successful. Somebody once told me, I said, why do you spend 18 hours a day in the office? Why don't you come home at night? He says, I have to prove to everybody in my office that they need me. I have to prove to everybody that they need me. I'm going to get the validation I need. Of course I need to get the validation I need. It's the only thing that will tell me that I mean something. I don't mean anything else if you don't validate me. We don't know what exists, what else exists? <laughs> what else exists? Now, don't we all like validation? Validation is 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 a good thing. <laughs> it's nice to get validation, it's nice to get compliments, etc. But when validation is survival, when validation is my survival, there's no survival outside of that. Now, it's not just I have a struggle, there's no I that's struggling the core of that eye is compromised. And when a child grows up with that, and we, the caretakers of the child, the mother, the father, brothers, sisters, mentors, teachers, therapists, psychologists, rabbis, rebbitsons are not in tuned to this level of emotional murder, the child is all alone. And that isolation absolutely confirms this truth. It's not just somebody did something bad to me. That bad defines me from today on. It's not just somebody hurt me. Somebody smacked me in the face. It hurts. It's not nice. You should apologize. <laughs> this is where trauma creates impaired self-beliefs about myself because my real eye almost, it's, it's, it's the tragedy of it. It's like been stolen. It's tucked away somewhere in the sub, 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 subconscious layers of the self. And I show up to life with a completely fake eye that I created, my brain created successfully, in order to be able to survive and cope. And some people cope amazingly. You're almost astounded about how powerful they are. What a, and sometimes the person doesn't even know that they're doing this. Because it happened when they were five. And it's a subconscious memory. And the subconscious is driving it all. But I walk around life and I say, not only am I a grasshopper, But I know the truth that everybody sees me that way. I don't even have to say it. I feel it. Because trauma is also pre-verbal. It's not something that has a story. Because if it has a story, it's usually not so devastating. If I could tell a story about something, I can convey it in words, it already is contained to some degree. But these are things that's called pre-verbal. It touched me in a place that's deeper than words. And therefore words actually can't contain it. Now look at Hashem's continuation. Look at Hashem's next words. And here is, you know, I know I painted now a dismal a picture, so the Medrash continues. The Medrash continues. Mi <speaking in Hebrew> <speaking in Hebrew> I find these words not just to be beautiful, but also incredibly moving and profound. Hashem is now trying to shift their paradigm. He doesn't even say how they looked at you. He's saying, Hashem could say they looked at you as angels. He doesn't say that. Because the person can't hear those words. He's planting a question in their mind. You know, sometimes you say, oh, they don't look at you as grasshoppers, they see you as angels. He doesn't say that. He says, "Can you even hear a question, The beginning of healing starts with a question. It starts with an awareness. It starts with the curiosity, the inquisitiveness, that maybe there's nothing wrong with me. Maybe that deep, deep belief is coming from a place that I'm not responsible for. Something has been done to me. Maybe I made you like angels in their eyes. The truth is that when they see you, They may be seeing a malach, an angel. Can you see that disparity? (laughs) A person told me the other day he needed to call someone for a big, big favor that he needed. And he couldn't get himself to make the call. I asked him, why, why? It was very hard for him to answer. Ultimately, when I pushed a little bit, the answer that came back was very, very sad. And that is... I am so frightened of the rejection that I know that will come that I would just rather have the problem and not solve it than hear that frightening no. So there's two points here. First of all, he's certain that the person is going to say no. And I said, how do you know? He said, why shouldn't he say no? (laughs) It It would be a miracle if he doesn't say no. It was partial that I don't deserve. It was simple to him that he doesn't deserve it. For sure the person will say no. But more than that, it's not just I'm sure you're going to say no. And if you say no, that pain is not tolerable. Because what does that mean? It means like you're confirming to me what I always knew about myself. It's not like you said no. Okay, you said no. It's nicer to get a yes. I like to hear yes. I don't like to hear no. But we all must become aware that no is not a death sentence. It's no. Or as one fundraiser told me, when I hear no, he says, here's the rule in fundraising. He's a big Jewish fundraiser. He says, here's the rule. One in 20 says yes. 19 say no. When I hear no, all I hear is, I'm getting closer to the one who's going to say yes. One more down. Sorry, down, down, down. Boom, 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 boom. Yes, next. I like that. He doesn't hear No. The no is a hachane, right? You're not going to get to the yes without the no. Sure. That comes from a place of of, of confidence. This person, not only am I sure you're going to say no, but the effects of that, I I just don't want to go there. We have to be aware. Now, all of us have a little bit of this, right? Huh? Yes. Yes. Some of us have it more. Some of us have it less. This is the human condition. We all have this. But sometimes a person lives with this. They breathe it. So this becomes their raison d'etre, their MO, their very identity. And therefore I can't, I just can't put myself out there. If I can't put myself out there, how can I bring my light to the world? I don't even know that there's even, I don't even know that there's a light. I don't even know I have something to give. All I'm doing is I'm dodging. I'm dodging. I'm literally dodging perceived bullets in my own mind. So what does Hashem tell this person? The spies are a prototype of Talented, creative, brilliant, spiritual, holy people. And he says, who says that in their eyes you didn't appear as angels? The word malachim means malachim, angels. But the word malachim in Hebrew means, Rashi says, a malach is a shliach, a messenger. Yaakov, malachim. So Rashi says malachim mamish, because usually malachim means you send a malach as an angel, a messenger, an ambassador. Hashem is not just saying, who says they don't see you as angels? I want you to be able to begin to shift perspective. I created you. I know you. Hashem told Yermiya Hanavi in the opening of Jeremiah, he says, Beterem et sarcha bebeten ticha. Before I deposited you in the womb of your mother, I made you holy. Before you were conceived, I knew you. Now think about that. How is a child conceived? You have the half a cell that comes from the seed, the half a cell that comes from the egg. The two merge. It creates a single cell. Doctor, am I right? Okay. I don't want to fail on my uh, biology tests. The end of the year. Some finals. That one cell is now replicated and ultimately 70 trillion, 80 trillion cells, you have an organism, incredible. So he says, before that cell was formed, I knew you. (laughs) I formed that cell. I had a vision. I wrote the blueprints for the cell. I'm the one who wrote the blueprints. Can you go back to that space? Can you go back to that space? I, I know you better than you know yourself because my knowledge of you precedes your existence. That's a very powerful idea. My knowledge of you precedes your existence. In other words, your eye is preceded by my awareness of your eye. And that awareness is fully divine. That awareness is all love. I conceived you in love. The day you were born is the day that Hashem said the world is an incomplete place. Without your light, without your contribution. And I gave you a mission to do. You're my malach. You're an angel. Yes, you're an angel, and you're a shliach, you're a messenger. <speaking in Hebrew> Says the Balatanya, <speaking in Hebrew> the shliach of the, Adam, of the ultimate Adam, Hashem, is k'moisei. <speaking in Hebrew> so you're my emissary, you're my ambassador. You're mine, you're my malach, you're my ambassador. And the moment you can realize this, the moment you can really realize this, not just intellectually, but viscerally, in the, in your bones, in your gut. You know, Davida Malach says, Libi Ufsari, kel Keilachai. It's not just my head, my cerebral mind, my, my heart, my buster, your, your flesh. Sematic, what are they called? Semantic experiences. Semantic experiences. Libi Ufsari. The moment I can realize that, then I will know that people don't look at me as a grasshopper. They see me as an angel, as a Malach. Because that's the truth of who I am. That's the truth of who you are. And it's this crisis that somebody else faces. Shoal HaMelech. They were chosen by Moshe. Shoal is the first king chosen by Shmuel Novi. He's sent on a mission to destroy Amalek, the arch enemies of the Jewish people, the Nazis of the day. And Shoal doesn't do it. And then Shmuel says, why didn't you do it? Then Shoal says, I was afraid of the people. I was afraid of the people. I was trying to please the people. And what does Shmuel tell him? Take a look. Shmuel, Aleph, Perik, Tesvav, Pasuk, Yitzayin, Samuel 1, chapter 15, verse 17. Vayoymer Shmuel, listen to these words. Haloyim in ata beinecha, roi shifte Yisrael ata, vayim shachacha Hashem lemelech al Yisrael. You may seem so small in your own eyes. But the truth is, you are the head of the tribes of Israel, Hashem anointed you, Lamelech al Yisrael. Shmuel could have just told them Hashem anointed you, he gives them this introduction, this deep psychological introduction, I know what you think about yourself, he doesn't just say, Hashem made you a king, why are you scared? He says, let's work this through. In your eyes, you're diminished. And as we learn from the Miraglim, you start projecting that. you know, It's not just I'm small. Mele. Everybody looks at me and sees this emotional, small, mediocre nobody. And I'm confident in this. And everything else is babamises. It's nice mises. You feel bad for a broken... Some women feel bad for a broken vessel, so they smile. What do you do with that? You say, oh, it's just in your mind. <laughs> sure. You know, when you don't understand this about people, your respon- our responses are so off. It's like it's just in your mind. It's exactly what he had to hear. It's like when I, sometimes I hear somebody tell somebody, you shouldn't think like this. Really? You think I wake up every morning trying to think that I'm the loser of the century? You really think I wake up and I'm like, Maidani! Okay, God, help me realize that I'm the biggest loser who ever existed. Please help me. Thank you. Don't think like this. I'm not trying to think like this. <laughs> I'm not trying to be anxious. I'm not trying to be depressed. I'm not trying to be stressed. It's, it's, it's a reality that's sitting inside. So these words have to be said from a place that goes much deeper than the trauma. And that's why the relationship with Hashem is so vital. Because Hashem is that part of me, the the divine part in me, precedes the abuse. And no abuse can destroy it, even if I have no access to it. But that knowledge, that awareness that it exists, and there are methods, especially today, through which people can dig, 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 and go through the layers, encourages a person, because perspective is not enough. A class doesn't do the trick. I wish it did. (laughs) Classes don't do the trick. But if they can create the awareness There is a reality, there's a reality where you're a malach, you're not a chagav, you're not a grasshopper. Now I have to be able to internalize, I have to be able to work through things in my my somatic self, in, in my brain, in my psyche, in my perception. So Hashem says, take it, you're going to have to one day put it at the door, even if you see it, even if it's part of you, even if it's never going to be obliterated. But ultimately, I have to be able to walk around the world and say, I'm not a grasshopper, I'm a malach, I'm an angel, I'm a shliach of the Reboi Neshelol. And they don't look at me and see just a grasshopper. They will look at me the way I will look at myself. They will look at me for the truth that is really true about me, and that truth I'm going to embody, I'm going to to fulfill. And this, according to the Medrash, is what happened to that generation that generation of slaves that left Egypt, and I'm going to use contemporary language for it because it, it's so, it shows you how this is a blueprint literally for 2022, for so many. The trauma of Egyptian slavery was so profound that even watching the exodus of Egypt and the splitting of the sea and the manna coming down from heaven, amazing, amazing, spectacular events, and it's not, people say the Miragam didn't believe. That's a foolish interpretation. Of course they believed. First of all, you didn't have to believe. You saw it. If you ask the spies, what did you eat for breakfast? Omelet and cheese? You went to hotel? They ate the man. Where did the man come from? You bought it in the store. It was in Evergreen. Where was it? Rockland kosher? Oh, it comes from heaven. Really? And how did you get through the yams of? Oh, the water split. And how did you get out of Egypt? Oh, there were ten plagues. Right? They say one of the prime ministers of Israel said to live in the Middle... If you live in the Middle East and you don't believe in miracles, you're not a realist. You're not a realist. They didn't have to have belief. They had to look what they ate for breakfast. (laughs) Nothing was alpiteva. The point is they had a munah. But in a very deep, visceral place, in a visceral place, there was a fear that was unresolved. A very deep fear. And that came out in those last words, we know the real truth about ourselves and everybody knows it. And therefore, even though they received the Torah, they defeated Amalek, but the path to liberation is a deep one. It's a profound one. It's an intricate one. They have left Egypt, but Egypt has not left them. You got that? Yeah, And the Torah tells this to us not to deprive us from energy. On the contrary, to make us aware of two things. First of all, how deep somebody can struggle. And number two, that despite the struggle that somebody has, liberation is always your destination because it's at your core. If you ask what is the truth, how did the world look at them? How did the people in Canaan look at them? Well, we're privy to that. Because 40 years later, Yehoshua sent two spies, Pinchas and Kalev. And they came to Jericho, to Jericho. And they stayed by Rachav, And Rachav told them exactly how everybody looked at them. That's the Haftarah of Parshishlach. It happens 40 years later. It's the last source. Yehoshua Perik Bey's Posik Tes. We have to wait till the book of Yehoshua, Chapter 2. And what does Yahushua say? She, Rochov, told the men, the spies, "Yadati ki nosen Hashem luchem es oredz vichinof leimashchem aleinu vichinamayu kol yosh vayoritz mipneichem. Ki shamanu es asher hoi vishadinoi es meyamsav mipneichem vatsheizchem vmitzrayim. Vashar esisim lushnei malchi amayri ashe bavadayadun lishichinu loig asher achramtem oisom vanishma vayimash luvaveinu vloikamoid ruach ish mipneichem ki adinoi eleichem hu elohim vashamayim imal valloritz mitochas. Those are the words of Rachav to these two spies. One of them who was one of the spies 40 years earlier, Caliph. And she says, we have heard everything that happened when you left Egypt. We have heard what you did. And our hearts melted. And nobody has ruach. Nobody has umph, spirit, to stand up against you. We have learned that your God is the true God, not only in heaven, but also in earth below. Rachaf's famous words, Alekim That was a true depiction of what they thought about these grasshoppers. My whole life I'm walking around, and in my own experience, everybody just sees a grasshopper. And Hashem says, just ask the question. Do you think I made a mistake when I conceived you? Do you think I made a mistake when I created you? Never allow a perpetrator, from within or from without, to give the final verdict of who you are, to give the final din of your identity. Always remember the truth. You're not a grasshopper, you're an angel. Have a wonderful week. This class is brought to you by the yeshiva.net. Please help us continue the classes. Make even a small contribution at triple w. dot theyeshiva. dot net slash donate.